Hey everybody and welcome to this episode of Matriarchs of the Bible. We are on lesson number six and today it's all about Bella and Zilpah. Uh, we have studied the earliest matriarchs of the Bible beginning with Eve and then we move to Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and today Bella and Zilpah. <coughs> so I want to begin by uh, talking about two words, or well, four words. The first one, monogamy, and then we're going to look at some poly words. And so we're looking at polygamy, polygyny, and polychoity. And those might be, some of them might be new to you. So we're going to dig into that. And to do so, let me set the stage for where we are in our story of the family of Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel were conceived by four women. Two of them, Rachel and Leah, are the most well-known, and their names are still popular today and often ranked among the most popular names for girls. The other two mothers of the 12 tribes are Billa and Zilpah. Now, does anybody know of any other Billas and Zilpas? <laughs> well, probably not. And we will see that they took a secondary role in our story, but very important. Well, one man having 13 children by four wives is not common today, but I guess it does happen, not in the way it happened for Jacob, though. Uh, it happened through Polly, not as in Polly Anna. <laughs> so get ready for a vocab lesson. Well, we want to look at monogamy and four or three Polly words. So the first is monogamy. Now, monogamy is the practice or state of being married to one, only one person at a time. So the Bible presents monogamy as the plan that conforms most closely to God's ideal for marriage. The Bible says God's original intention was for one man to be married to only one woman. And we read that in Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be, re be united to his wife. It doesn't say wives. And they will become one flesh, not multiple fleshes. So that's the premise, the beginning of marriage. However, the Old Testament is filled with examples of people abandoning monogamy. So enter polygamy and its variations. Well, the term polygamy refers to generally a man or a woman with multiple spouses. Well, we've already seen this with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and then again with Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. The prophet Samuel was born into a household where his mother Hannah was constantly provoked by her husband's other wife, Penina. Many patriarchs and kings had multiple wives also. Even David and Solomon, God's chosen leaders, had multiple wives over the course of their reigns. In every biblical account of men having multiple wives, there is conflict. Families not based on a monogamous relationship paid a price. Well, I want us to look at the marriage customs in the Bible that gave way to this practice of the polys. And I want us to also remember that the culture and the customs and God's laws are not necessarily one and the same. 
the practice of monogamy changed when people became desperate and they quit waiting on God and then they forged a path of convenience. And marriage customs in scripture are depicted from the male point of view. So here is what happened. Men were allowed to have more than one wife, but a woman could only have one husband. So you see it was from this male perspective in a patriarchal viewpoint that this all began to unravel. Monogamy began to unravel. Well, social scientists now have categories for polygamy. They, the word polygamy, polygony is one of those. And so social scientists categorize a marriage between one man and two or more women of equal social status as polygyny. So that is a form of polygamy. Well, polygyny is an example of Jacob and Rachel and Jacob and Leah. They were, the women were both of equal social status. They were sisters. And so the husband provides a dowry for each, and then each is given the same economical status, and there is an arrangement that they will be, uh, the uh, women will be responsible for uh, the needs of the husband in whatever way that is assessed. And he's responsible for taking care of them economically. Well, then there's the term polycoity, and that refers to a marriage pattern in which a man takes an additional wife beyond his primary wife and who is of lower social status than the primary wife. Now we're starting to look at what's going on in the Jacob story. We begin to have secondary wives. This person is usually a handmaiden, and her role within the family unit is either to bear children in order to build up the husband's lineage or to provide sexual enjoyment for the husband. Well, the distinction between a primary and secondary wife is based on economic considerations. Marriage to the primary, now think Sarah, think Leah and Rachel, is based on this two-part agreement where both spouses contribute. He pays the dowry and she produces heirs through conjugal rights. Translate that, a trip to the marital tent. <laughs> but a secondary wife, think Hagar and our focal women for today, Bella and Zilpah. These are women without economic standing in the husband's household. So that became a cultural practice that we read about in the Old Testament. Well, by New Testament times, for the most part, monogamy was the norm in the Jewish culture. However, some Jews whom Jesus lived among had the same problem. Polygamy had been considered normal and proper until the Romans took over and said, no, this is disgusting and it's immoral. And so the Romans outlawed Jews to continue practicing polygamy in Palestine. But everywhere else in the empire, monogamy was strictly enforced. Well, Jesus comes along and he taught monogamy. When Jesus was asked about divorce, 
His answer strongly implied that marriage is between one man and one woman with no hint of polygamy. Let's read this in Mark 10, verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So when Jesus says that the two shall become one flesh, the obvious implication is that this is a union between two individuals only. It's not three or more that become one. Only two become one. Nowhere does Jesus or any of the New Testament writers suggest this union should occur between a married individual and anybody else. Well, we've studied over the last few weeks about the trials and tribulations of being in the Jacob, Rachel, and Leah marriage triangle. It became more complicated now when the sisters invited their maids to join the baby games in order to produce more children for Jacob and then hopefully gain favored wife status. But not one thing, not one baby, not one mandrake, not one extra night in the marital tent changed Jacob's pick as favored wife. Rachel was the one from the beginning when she was 15 to the time she died at 36. Today, now let's look at the lives of Bella and Zilpah to see how their lives were affected by these baby wars. So let's go back and look at the chronology, and we're going to focus on these two women who were handmaidens initially. Before they married, Laban had gifted Bella and Zilpah to Leah and Rachel as their handmaidens. So their father had given them these servant women. Well, at the beginning of her marriage, Rachel could not conceive, despite her desire to have Jacob's children and be a part of this future that she knew he was to have. The pain of her childlessness was exacerbated when she watched her sister Leah birth not one but four children, bam, 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 one right after another. Rachel became jealous of her sister. Well, besides envying the children Leah had, Rachel attributed Leah's fertility to her righteousness and envied the good deeds Leah must have done to merit offspring. Rachel struggles with self-worth, and we read in Genesis Thursday, 30, uh, her despair that she is experiencing. It starts in the first verse. When Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I'll die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I God's stead who hath held, withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? And she said, Behold my maid Billa, go to her and she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. So I've read that in the King James Version because there are a few points I want us to focus on. In her desperation for children, Rachel followed the example of Sarah and the wife of Abraham and Rachel's grandmama-in-law, and she married her maid Billa to her husband so that she could have children through her. 
we've addressed the practice in the culture of men having multiple wives. However, it was not God's plan. It always made the pathway to God's perfect plan complicated, and it created turmoil in the families who practiced it. There were laws at the time to determine the status and rights of a barren woman. The marriage contract said that a woman whose servant had the children of her husband should have full authority over offspring. So that was the first wife should have the authority and the secondary has a baby. Well, this is adoption ceremony that takes place. It was often conducted by placing the son or daughter on the knees of the mistress and declaring it her child. So this may have been what Rachel meant when she said to Billa, shall bear upon my knees. Or she may have just been referring to the way ancient women commonly gave birth. Women in labor were surrounded by their women friends who encouraged them to stay upright during labor and then to sway during contractions. Okay, so get that visual. Now, it's been 37 years since I last gave birth. But my memory is pretty clear that I would not have been able to either stand upright or to sway during contractions. Flinging back and forth in a horizontal position? Yes. Now, remember this also. Belly dancing is actually an ancient fertility dance that women were taught at a young age to help with conception and labor. That would have helped, wouldn't it? But I missed that class too. <laughs> well, if, if given another chance, you know, I just might have considered all of the above. Now, during the final stage of labor, a woman would squat and be supported under the arms by one or two other women. And sometimes they placed bricks under her to give her more support, and then the midwife knelt in front of her. The image of women being supported in a squat by other women is the most common image of women giving birth throughout history and around the world. So when Rachel meant that Bella would bear upon her knees, she may have been referring to this actual position in which she would give birth. Rachel would have been there when Bella gave birth to her two sons, and these sons now were considered to be Rachel's, and she would have raised them as her own. Rachel gives these sons' name. The first one was Dan, and she said this in Scripture, God hath judged me and hath also heard my voice and has given me a son. Well, the second one was Naphtali, and she said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have won. So, Billa bears Rachel two sons. And Leah found that even though she already had four sons, she was no longer able to have any more. So, following the example of her sister, Leah gave her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob as a wife so that she could have more children. Well, Zilpah then bears Leah two sons. The first one is Gad, and it means a troop cometh. And the second one that she had is Asher, and that she said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. So like Rachel, the sons that Zilpah bore would have been considered to be Leah's, and she would have raised them as her own sons. Since they all lived in community together, 
Bella and Zilpa would have been able to see their sons every day, and they would have known that these women were their birth mothers. So I began to imagine what it would have been like. What, what were the family dynamics when it came to bringing up all these sons and, and one daughter with four baby mamas? It must have been really hard. And, and then at the same time, wouldn't it have been nice to have someone to help with the children during the, some difficult days? I wonder what role each played. Was one better at discipline than others? Did Leah keep her kids away from the favorite Joseph? You know, Benjamin wasn't even around yet because he he wasn't born yet. And then Rachel died when she gave birth to him. So they at one point weren't in the mix. Now, did the maidservants, these surrogate wives, do all the heavy work around the house when it came to caring for the children? Or What was each person's job? Leah was pregnant nearly every year, and she probably needed the help, didn't she? Bella and Zilpah sacrificed their babies for a greater cause, didn't they? They were in the cause of providing Jacob with the tribes that he needed to fulfill the prophecy of Abraham's seed giving birth to a new nation. Well, what did the role Billa and Zilpah do to them emotionally? Consider that for just a minute. Their, their sacrifice reminds me of all the women today who make similar sacrifices around the world by serving as surrogates. There are still Billas and Zilpas helping the Rachels and Leahs become mothers, aren't there? Well, we have another sad and demoralizing story about Jacob's family, and we read it in Genesis 35, verse 22. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Billa, and Israel heard of it. Wow. Now, Israel is the new name for Jacob. So Reuben goes in, and he sleeps with the second wife, secondary wife, Billa. So to get the time frame, after Rachel died, Jacob moved to a place in Judah. After Jacob had settled down in that place, Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn, slept with Billa, Jacob's secondary wife, and one of Reuben's stepmothers. Because of his transgression, Reuben ends up losing the privileges he was to be given as the firstborn son. And in the blessings of his children that we read at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob said to Reuben, it's in Genesis 49, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel for you went up into your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. Reuben's rape of Jacob's secondary wife is one of those tragic events that occurred in Jacob's family, a family that had experienced so many other tragedies. It's interesting to note that we read that Jacob heard of it, but we don't read what Jacob said to Reuben at the time. But we read about it when it's time to give the blessings and the prophecy at the end of Genesis. 
some people even question whether or not Bella was raped or she was a willing partner. But Professor of Old Testament, Dr. Clab Marionetti, says this, it is difficult to believe that Bella consented on the sex act. As a secondary wife, she would be cast out of the house and probably be stoned to death for committing adultery. She had much to lose and nothing to gain by having sex with Reuben. The issue is one of jealousy. Since Bella was the maid of Rachel and Reuben was the son of Leah, Reuben probably was afraid that in the death of Rachel, Bella would become Jacob's favorite wife instead of his mother, Leah. So do you see, because of that jealousy, uh, he made a bad choice, didn't he? Well, he was the firstborn, and there were consequences. The oldest son was supposed to receive a double inheritance, but Reuben lost his special honor. Jacob could not give the birthright blessing to such a dishonorable son. Isn't it interesting how the sins of the fathers continue? Reuben's father stole a birthright blessing, and Reuben lost his, both because of bad choices. Even though their birth mothers didn't have legal claim on their sons, we read in Genesis 46 that Dan and Naphtali are listed as the children of Billah and Asher, and, and Asher and Gad are listed as the children of Zilpah. So the birth mothers did have an active part in their upbringing, and they are continued to be mentioned uh, in that lineage. Well, I want us to look at Genesis 49, because this is when Jacob gives the blessing for each of the 12 sons, born by four different mothers. He also makes a prediction about each one's future. He had observed that the way each, how each one of them lived, and that's how he blessed them, and that's how he prophesied about them. God was certainly a part of this prophecy. So let's take a look at, at Genesis 49. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather round. I want to tell you what you can expect in the days to come. Come together. Listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And so here we go. We're going to call each son by name and say what he prophesies for them and how they, what role they play in a blessing. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my strength, my first proof of manhood. At the top of, in honor and at the top in power, but... Like a bucket of water spilled, you'll be at the top no more because you climbed into your father's marriage bed, mounting that couch, and you defiled me. So the firstborn lost his blessing. Well, Leah's next two sons are up. Simeon and Levi are two of a kind, ready to fight at the drop of a hat. I don't want anything to do with their vendettas want no part of their bitter feuds. They kill men in fits of temper, slash oxen on a whim, a curse on their uncontrolled anger, on their indiscriminate wrath. I'll throw them out with the trash. I'll shred and scatter them like confetti throughout Israel. So do you see, uh, they're out too of, of favor, aren't they, with their father? Well, Leah's next born is going to get the bonus blessing. You, Judah, your brothers will praise you, your fingers on your enemy's throat while your brothers honor you. Your 
a lion's cub, Judah, home fresh from the kill, my son. Look at him, crouched like a lion, king of beasts. Who dares mess with him? The scepter shall not leave Judah. He'll keep a firm grip on the command staff until the ultimate ruler comes and the nations obey him. So Judah gets the blessing of being the ruler, not the first, second, or third born. It was the fourth born that gets it. No mention of wealth, though. Judah gets leadership. So we'll stay tuned about the wealth. Next, we get to Zebulun. Settles down on the seashore. He's a safe harbor for ships right alongside Sidon. Zeb is the youngest son of Leah. He's number six. He's just heard this grand prophecy for Judah, who's going to be this great leader. And Zeb gets one line. You're going to a little place on the sea up north. (laughs) Poor Zeb. He might have thought, why so little for little old me? Well, guess what happened in Zeb's little spot? The book of Matthew tells us this. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, And we go on to learn that this is where Jesus Christ began his ministry. Big things can come from little places. God can do great things from those who seem to have the smallest of gifts and blessings. Let's look at the next son. Issachar is one tough donkey crouching between the corrals. When he saw how good the place was, how pleasant the country, he gave up his freedom and went to work as a slave. So Issachar apparently had demonstrated great physical strength, but he lacks any will to use it for great purposes. So that's the commentary on him. The next one, Dan, will handle matters of justice for his people. He will hold his own just fine like the tribes of Israel. Dan is only a small snake in the grass, a lethal serpent in ambush by the road when he strikes a horse in the hill and brings its huge rider crashing down. I wait in hope for your salvation, God. Jacob can predict predict that Dan will become a great leader, but his heart is not really in it. Uh, He's waiting for hope of his salvation. Dan doesn't seem to be clearly sold out for God. And so Jacob is predicting that Dan is going to lead his people astray. And then we get to Gad. Gad will be attacked by bandits, but he will trip them up. And then the tribe of Gad is known for being great warriors. Asher will become famous for rich foods, candies, and sweets fit for a king. So Asher's land was this fertile, rich area along the Mediterranean. Naphtali is a deer running free that gives birth to lovely fawns. Naphtali was given mountainous lands near the Sea of Galilee where deer run free. Joseph is a wild donkey, a wild donkey by a spring, spirited donkeys on a hill. The archers with malice attacked shooting their hate-tipped arrows, but he held steady under fire, his bow firm, his arms limber, with the backing of the champion of Jacob, the shepherd, the rock of Israel. May the blessings of your father exceed the blessings of the ancient mountains. 
surpass the delights of the eternal hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the one consecrated among his brothers. So Joseph, the favorite, inherits the wealth. He receives a great blessing. And the last, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. All morning he gorges on his kill. At evening divides up what's left over. And Benjamin's tribes became great warriors. We close this scripture. All these are the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with his own special farewell blessing. Isn't it interesting to see how Jacob knew his sons and through God was able to accurately prophesy their future? Well, let's sum up this story of Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Bill, and Zilpah. We see how God worked through this family to bring about his will by their sons, eventually, who were going to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. But let's look at these women. In the case of Leah, she was rejected, dealt with the emotions of jealousy, and deeply desired to be pursued. What she realized was that though her own sister Rachel was wanted and pursued, Rachel herself had her own demons to deal with, including jealousy and anger. A husband didn't fix their problems. And then Billa and Zilpah were used by the sisters to fix their own sense of lack and insecurities. But those secondary wives didn't fix that either. There had been, been recorded not much about Billa and Zilpah, um, but we do read a, a story. In other words, we don't hear any kind of angry responses or issues from these two women in regards to their relationship with the primary wives. We don't read a story like Hagar's of a bit angry back and forth between her and Sarah. These women seem to have accepted their plight with humility and devotion. Through all of this, God did what God does. He worked out the marital mess for his good. The marriages resulted in 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel was God's dearly beloved country. And from them came the world's savior, Jesus Christ. It's wonderful how God can use all of our failings and mess-ups and mix-ups and can turn them to good. We want to make that happen in our own lives when we mess up. We want to make a turnaround so that we can be healed and we can be restored and then we can see the good that God does through our own lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of this family. Uh, there were some wonderful victories and wonderful moments, and then there were some tragedies, and there were some disappointments. You took all of that big mess, and you turned some miracles into it with each of these sons and the future that you gave them. 
they ended up comprising the land of Israel, which is dear to your heart. And we know that uh, from what scripture tells us, and we're so thankful for that. Help us to take what we've learned from each of these women and apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. Help us to make mindful, wise, deliberate choices that will please you. In Jesus' name, amen.